Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back to the uh, School of Christi and we're continuing with our reading of Romano Guardini's uh, Meditations Before Mass. And tonight we'll be looking in particular at his thought on the collects of the Mass, the special prayers, in particular the opening prayer, prayer at the offertory, and then the closing prayer. And uh, it's surprising how interesting he makes this become for us. I mean, I think we take a lot of things from the Mass for granted, especially something uh, like an opening prayer. Uh, but he really presents, us to, presents it to us in such a way that I think it opens us up to uh, listening on a deeper level uh, and preparing ourselves to uh, be a part of that moment uh, in ways that perhaps we've never thought of before. Uh, so looking forward to it. And then next week and the week following, or next month and the week, month following, we'll be looking at the congregation in particular, the things that we bring uh, to the Mass itself. And so next month we'll be looking at it. If you have something against your, you come to the altar, remember you have something against your brother, leave your gift, go and be reconciled with your brother. So the title of this is The Word of Entreaty. And uh, it's also, he describes it as the word of prayer. And as I mentioned in the little opening, it, uh, he's focusing this evening on the particular prayers of the Mass, the collect, what was called the, the secret, uh, because it was said pro uh, quietly by the priest himself. Now we hear the priest uh, say it uh, during the offertory. Uh, where he'll say, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And then the congregation responds. But that was said in silence in the past, and typically only the altar boy would, would respond to it. And then finally, he'll be discussing the, the prayer after communion. And uh, again, uh, as always, the italicized print is uh, my introduction. And, you know, I read this over three or four times again uh, this this morning, and uh, I actually don't think we need the introductory remarks because I think he's so clear within the text itself. I feel like I would be repeating what we're going to hear uh, within his own writing. So I think just for this month, we'll we'll skip the uh, what I've I've put together. It doesn't uh, seem to add to anything, and I'm not just doing it for the sake of brevity. <laughs> He begins by saying, in singular contrast to the prayer of praise, which we discussed last month, uh, the particular hymns during the Mass, the Gloria, if you remember, the, uh, the Sanctus, Agnus Dei, the, uh, in contrast to these, to, to the prayer of praise stands the prayer of entreaty, the oratio. We find it chiefly in three places, after the Gloria in the Collex, after the Offertory in the Secret, which I described earlier, and after the communion prayer in the post-communion. It also appears in the canon in various requests before and after the consecration, and at the end of, our, of the Our Father. Our concern here is with the prayers which appear in the three places mentioned first, the collect, the secret, and the post-communion. And so within the canon itself, that is within the Eucharistic prayer, you'll find the priest uh, uh, sort of asking in particular for God's blessing in a particular way uh, or uh, using the, the formula or the, the prayer, let us pray. Uh, so there are particular prayers within the canon itself 
that are, could be included in this, but he just wants to focus on the three, three main ones. That they are important is at once seen from the words and gestures which precede them. The priest kisses the altar, an expression of closest contact with the, with the place of God's proximity. Then he turns to the people and with a grave and formal gesture says, the Lord be with you. To this the congregation or server replies, and with thy spirit. It is the same words of collectedness and strengthening we met before in the preface. The priest says, Oremus, let us pray. And the collect follows. The preamble of the secret is even more solemn. There the priest says first, Orate fratres, brethren pray. Then he continues that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Father Almighty. The server answers, may the Lord receive the sacrifice at thy hands to the praise and glory of his name, to our own benefit and to, and to that of all his holy church. After this preparation, the priest prays over the offerings lying on the altar. And so he's already presenting to us, he's, he's sort of couching it in terms that we might not typically think of, uh, gestures uh, that are very formal, sort of uh, a saying of the prayers in a very uh, solemn fashion. And I think this is important. He's drawing us back uh, to something important in, about the prayers themselves, which he'll get into, but also about the, the manner of the priest and the way that he introduces these prayers and also says them, but also the way that the congregation listens to what the prayer, uh, priest is saying, how they respond to that invitation to pray, and then how they engage the prayer itself. Uh, I read earlier this week, somebody commented that it never enhances the Mass whenever a priest at the beginning of the Mass gets up there and makes some commentary uh, about the, the Mass itself or w what feasts we're celebrating that day. It typically will detract from the flow of the liturgy and even from the solemnity itself. It makes it overly familiar. And I think what we'll find Guardini coming back to over and over again in, in this reflection is that the church purposely has a kind of formality in these prayers and a kind of brevity about them for a reason, that they, they bring us back to something very ancient within the life of the church. And the more ancient the prayers are, he tells us, the briefer they are, typically one sentence long that captures the, the very essence of the, of the theme of the Mass itself. And he'll give us a couple examples, in particular uh, from Lent, of, of the collect at the beginning of the Mass, the offertory, and then also the post-communion prayer. Uh, but uh, this solemnity that we are to have uh, prepares us uh, to offer our intentions along with the priest himself, that we are, it's called collect for a reason. He's collecting the prayers of the congregation as a whole who join with him in offering this prayer to the Father. And so there isn't to be something that's overly subjective or overly familiar about this prayer. In fact, when, when a priest makes up, when he ad-libs or when he makes up prayers like this, uh, he's doing something, I think, that is gravely problematic 
uh, but for a couple of reasons, because it pulls us out of this state of prayer and the solemnity, but also he's pulling us away from something very ancient, that these are some of the oldest prayers uh, of the church and of the liturgy itself. And so he's, when he begins to ablived, ablive it, and when it becomes too subjective, he's pulling us away in some sense from the tradition of the church, of the earliest prayers uh, of the church community, and so pulling us out in a sense of communion with the, the, the early church in doing it. And so a, a lot of times I think priests are tempted uh, to, to make things more engaging, uh, you know, to greet the congregation, or even, as I said, even to ad-lib some of, uh, some of the, the prayers, to make them up or to add things to them. And uh, I don't think we need to, to demonize this or demonize the priests that are doing it. I think sometimes it's done without uh, much thought behind it or with a desire to engage the congregation. But there's something far more engaging here that Guardini will speak to us about that is very important. So important that he tells us that we should really be reading the collects before the Mass, the night before, as he's talked about so often with the readings and everything else that we've considered, that we would read over these prayers so that in that period of silence when the priest says, let us pray, and he allows a lengthy pause for silence, we are reflecting upon what's coming, and not only that, but we're also adding our own particular intentions to what is being offered up to the Father. And when things become too subjective, too familiar, I think it prevents the congregation from doing that and doing that well. And, uh, you know, I think oftentimes when we look at the extraordinary form of the Mass or uh, when we look at a kind of solemnity with ways certain priests will say the Mass, sometimes people will think, well, that's too cold and too formal. And it might seem that way at first, but there's always a purpose and reason behind all of the, the acts and gestures and the prayers of the Mass. There's always a reason for why we're doing what we're doing. And this is what Guardini is keying us into. And I think a very beautiful way, once again, tonight. In all these prayers, he says, we are struck by one thing, their strict formality. They are terse and austere, the more so the older they are. Here are no elaborate thoughts, no moving images, no emotional outpourings, nothing but a few clear, terse sentences. And sometimes it's even one sentence long. And uh, if we let that pass without thinking about it, uh, or if we sort of zone out at that, that moment, uh, while the prayer is being said, we're missing something that keys us into the, the rest of the liturgy. Uh, and so sometimes we'll just let that moment pass until we sit down to hear the readings, but we should be really as attentive as we possibly can at that point. And I think that's why Guardini emphasizes that when the priest says, let us pray, he should really allow for a lengthy pause to take place there so that we do sort of silence the mind and the heart and we're ready to hear what is being said to it. And part of the reason is because of the brevity of it. And this is something I think unique uh, to the Latin Rite. Uh, the Eastern Rites and, uh, and among the Orthodox, there's a great deal, as you know, of repetition within their prayers and their prayers can be very lengthy. 
uh, and uh, whereas in the Latin rite, there's a kind of starkness uh, to the liturgy, and uh, it's purposive, though. There's a strong purpose behind it. Uh, it's very Roman, Guardini will tell us, uh, very much what you would find in Roman culture of the, the time, this kind of clarity, brev brevity, terseness, saying what they need to say in as few words as necessary. So it's reflective of the culture at the time. An example is found in the collect of the first Monday in Lent. Quote, convert us, O God, our salvation, and that the Lenten fast may be of profit to us, instruct our minds with heavenly discipline. That's it. So it's basically one sentence long. And so if one were paying attention or listening very deeply, we wouldn't be hearing what is being said there. And the secret from the same Mass, quote, sanctify, O Lord, the gifts offered to thee, and cleanse us from the stains of our sins. So you can see, you know, very clear uh, thrust here for the beginning of Lent. Instruct our minds in the heavenly disciplines, or at the secret prayer, prayer cleanse us from the stains of our sins. You know, both preparing us to enter into the holy season with a very clear focus, the discipline that is needed, but also the spirit of repentance with which we are entering into the holy season. Yes? Is this being translated into the vernacular? What's that? Is this being translated? I mean, he was writing when the Latin Mass was still in He was writing when the Latin Mass was being said, so this would have been uh, done in Latin. The collect would have been done in Latin. People would have been following along in their missals undoubtedly, and then the, uh, uh, the secret prayer, as I had mentioned, was not even said aloud. It was said only audibly so that the server could hear and respond on behalf of the congregation. And so in some ways, I think when we, we look at this and we look at the ordinary form, the, the, the Novus Ordo, that there is something that we are now able to participate in in a very direct way. Uh, uh, that uh, not that that's not possible in the extraordinary form, but very few, few people have certainly been educated in Latin, and uh, certainly with the secret prayer, it would not have been heard at all, and there would have been no response at that point. And so I think the level of participation that we can have is much greater with these prayers in, in the Novus Ordo, uh, both in the way that we prepare for it, but how we are listening to it. I think. Uh, Hearing it said in Latin and reading it in the the missal would, you know, have placed a level uh, of mediation there between ourselves and the priest. There's something far more immediate, I think, when we can listen to it and hear it and understand it as as it's being as it's being said or or chanted, that allows it to penetrate on a, on a deeper level. I think if we are hearing it in Latin and then also having to read the translation. Uh, just adds another another step there. And some, I'm sure, would disagree with me on this, but you know, I think in some ways it allows us to engage more fully. Finally, he says, the post-communion, filled with the gift of thy salvation, we humbly beseech thee, O Lord, that even as we rejoice in the participation thereof, we may be renewed also by its effect. So speaking of the, the renewal, certainly of the season that we're seeking in the spiritual life,
but the renewal that we also seek through the gift of having received the, the Holy Eucharist. So again, very, very stark, very straightforward, and, and brief. And uh, when we read it like this, it does seem very terse to us. You know, there's uh, nothing that's overly engaging or stimulating about it, and certainly nothing subjective or, uh, uh, you know, overly emotional or, or affective, I guess I would say, about it. And, uh, and for some, you know, I think we've tried over these past generations to, I think, change that, you know, and even the translations uh, in the past sacramentary tried to move away from that uh, in altering the translations in English, and they were lacking. You know, not, they not only were lacking, I think, in, sometimes in the meaning, sometimes they didn't seem to make any sense whatsoever, but I think they, they took away some of the, the beautiful simplicity and directness of those prayers. Now, we've regained some of that in the newer tr translation of the sacra sacramentary. Uh, it's a more exact translation uh, of the prayers. The tone seems at first very foreign to us. Our prayers are usually wordier. There is more emotion in them and they are far more personal. Of course, not all the prayers of the Mass are as austere as these, which have come down to us from a very early period, but their general tenor is more or less the same. The more subjective prayer is always of a later origin and somehow has lost its reserve. The early prayers spring not from the personal experience of the individual, but from the consciousness of the congregation, or more exactly, from the church. Often they are very official in the original sense of the word, the outcome of the officium, duty, the charges of the office. Roman clarity and objectivity so dominate them that to us of another stamp and era, they often seem cool and impersonal, perhaps even unreligious. But in this we should be very much mistaken, for they are packed with a piety, both powerful and profound. It is only that their form is different from that to which we are accustomed. They are not really alien to us, as Chinese rites would be, no matter how earnestly we took the latter. They would never touch us personally, never become one with our spirit. The early Christian prayers belong to us. They are a profound part of us. They come from the opposite pole of our existence, and we need them if we are to exist as complete persons. Inclined as we are to lose ourselves in the irrelevant and the all too subjective, their clear cut objective piety maintains an important balance. So, you know, these are pretty powerful statements. So I think one could understand him on some level, speaking of there being a reflection of the culture of the time and out of which they arose, the Roman culture, that there would be a kind of starkness and official quality to them. Uh, but to say some of the things that he did here at the end of the paragraph, that they, you know, uh, they belong to us, they are a profound part of us, that they, they are the opposite pole of our existence, and that we only become complete persons, in a sense, when we enter into them. Now, he's going to 
pull this apart for us as he goes along through the text, and I think, again, uh, beautifully. But uh, he's saying that if, if we do treat them as being t you know, too brief, uh, and we do turn to something that seems more uh, uh, pious to us or, or more emotional, then we fall into something that's too subjective and uh, we lose something here of a balance that's important for us in the Latin Rite Mass. That there is something of uh, built-in silence and solemnity and gravity, formality, that allows us to enter into that moment in a profound way. And if you've ever been to the extraordinary form of the Mass, uh, the, the, the nature of this, I think, is, uh, hits us even in a more profound way. Uh, the postures, the gestures of the priest are all very formal, exact, precise, uh, sometimes repetitive. The silence is often great. He's turned toward the altar. And uh, again, many of these prayers uh, are done in silence. And when he's addressing the congregation, he'll turn from the altar and face, face them directly. And so something of the spirit of this is seen more clearly in the extraordinary form, but it's still present in, in the ordinary form as well. And I think this is what he will capture very well for us here in the, in the coming paragraphs. But before we go on, anybody have any questions or comments on what he's said so far? Yes. I've never actually found, I'm kind of surprised to hear them described as like terse, and like I know they're short, but I've never mm -hmm. found them like stark. Mm -hmm. um, and I like that he said they're packed with a piety both powerful and profound because I've always found, particularly since I, I often put the collects on the holy cards with the introit, mm -hmm. and the introit and the collect combined. And the introit often has some sort of scriptural reference. Not always, right. but often has some sort of scriptural reference. And it's yeah. amazing to me that in one sentence and an introit, you get like, right. you, you just kind of key in on what's most important about that particular right. saint. That's exactly the point he's making, and I think you're, you're right. I mean, sometimes, uh, as a priest, when you if you sing the entrance antiphon, uh, you really experience that in a profound way. That in one statement, often something simply taken from the scriptures that is connected to the readings in some form or fashion, there's a real beauty to it. So the, the brevity does not, uh, in any way, decrease the sense of how profound these prayers are. So length and repetitiveness isn't necessarily going to draw us where we need to be. That I think there's something about these prayers in their brevity. It's almost like the brief prayer that we used to talk about here so often, those arrow prayers or something like the Jesus prayer that pierce the heavens, that there's something similar about these prayers from the, the Latin rite liturgy. They are brief, they are very focused, but in that focus, they allow us to, to make that movement directly to the, the, the Father in a very powerful, powerful way. And he'll, again, he'll show us why here in the coming paragraphs. But, you know, brevity, and the same with preaching too. <laughs> brevity doesn't necessarily take away from the impact of the homily. Uh, actually, Fulton Sheen said that it was, it's much harder to preach for five minutes than it is to preach for an hour. You know, that you can sort of go in with all these thoughts in your mind and sort of work around them, or any the same thing in giving a talk. But to work something down 
to five or ten minutes takes a lot of thought and prayer. And there's something about that brevity that can be far more impactful. That we only have the capacity as human beings to, I think, receive so much and internalize it and understand it and contemplate it. And I think the Latin Rite liturgy is very much aware of that and the the brevity of some of these prayers and the pace with which they are said, uh, I think, uh, helps us enter into them far more. Sometimes that that single introit, the entrance antiphon, just sounding out in the congregation in and of itself can lift the entire congregation as well as the priest and prepare them for what is to come. And so it doesn't have to be be lengthy. I think those who participate, say, within the Eastern Rite liturgies, you know, they grow up with that. It's part of their prayer from very early on. And and so they're able to enter into that because it's the expectation. They've been formed spiritually and and intellectually in a way to enter into that, into the prayers, and to appreciate their beauty and the meaning of them. But I, I think in the West that we are you know, much more focused in this way. And uh, I think trying to regain something of that focus and clarity uh, is ever so important for us. You know, we recently, you've probably heard uh, either online and, or in the news, the Pew study uh, about a Catholic's uh, belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and how it's shockingly low, the number, uh, the percent that, that believe in the real presence of Christ. And so it convinces me all the more the value of going, doing what we're doing here with, with Gardini, uh, but also of un- understanding things in the way that he's presenting them to us, that our participation in the liturgy isn't superficial, and that we aren't mere spectators in the most removed kind of way, but that we truly know what is going on and why. You know, why this is so, that these are so brief and terse and direct and how it is that we are to engage in that particular moment of the Mass. And the more that we do that, I think the, the more profound our entrance into the mystery will become. It sounds like he's, they're following the directive to, you know, when you pray, don't babble like the pagans. Uh, I think, for, yeah, in many ways, yeah, that the multiplying of our words, of our prayer, you know, both in our personal and liturgical prayer, isn't necessarily going to uh, make us righteous or necessarily going to make us pure of heart. And so, you know, we we could take a sort of glory in the fact if our liturgies were three hours long, we could see ourselves as the green berets of the church, you know, and uh, there can be a kind of pride in that, you know, that the liturgy really hurt me this morning because of all the prostrations and we're sweating by the end of it, you know, and exhausted and... uh, I've seen some of my Eastern friends joke around in that way, you know, when it comes to talking about the Eastern fast or the Eastern liturgies, that they are very long and that there is a kind of endurance that is needed there. And there's a beauty, I understand the beauty of it, but uh, I think there can be a kind of pride in that as, as well, that you know, the mere length of time that we are spending isn't necessarily reflective of what's going on in our hearts. Now having said that, because of the brevity and the, the uh, sharpness of the focus, we have to be in a sense far more prepared as we enter into it. 
Uh, and this is what Bardini has been saying over and over again from the beginning. Not only when we get to the church are we to have silence and composure and be prepared for the Mass to begin, but we have to be preparing through going through the readings of the Mass itself, but also he's telling us now through the specific prayers of the Mass so that when that moment comes, we, we are in it and in it fully. Okay, now where did I leave off? I'm sorry. The we cannot grasp. I'm sorry? We cannot grasp, okay. We cannot grasp the significance of these texts without real effort. They are the fruit of deep concentration. An alert sense of reality has experienced life. An unclouded mind has recognized and seized upon the essential. Precise and telling expression has made possible their complete simplicity. So in a sense, what he's telling us here is that the church, and in particular the early church, was you know, deeply rooted in the Paschal mystery. And they were so deeply rooted and their concentration so full on what Christ offers us in the Mass and how it's connected uh, to the Paschal mystery, to Calvary itself, that it gives rise to these prayers that have this very clear focus. So it's the focus of concentration. It's not simply for the sake of brevity, again. It it's, arises out of a kind of deep prayerfulness. The history of, these of the first century best reveals the masterly grasp of reality that forms the basis of these prayers. For the young church had to struggle heroically, first with the voluptuous luxury of a decaying antiquity, then with the mighty forces that came into existence in the chaos of the great migrations and the, the dawning of the middle, middle Ages. They are not, as we might suppose, complete self-explanatory texts. The situation from which they spring was summed up in the silent prayers that preceded them. We do not take the introductory, let us pray, seriously enough. The procedure really should be as follows. Folding his hands, the priest says, Aramus, let us pray. Now there is silence for a good while during which the individual believer, taking the mystery of the day as his theme, prays for his own intention and for the intention of the congregation. The silent, manifold praying is then gathered up by the priest and expressed in the few sentences of the collect, so that his brief words are filled with all the vitality that has just silently lifted itself to God. Now its terseness no longer seems inadequate, but rich and re recapitulative. By studying the collects beforehand, we could make them the vehicles of our intentions as they are meant to be. And so, you know, he's telling us that it's out of the experience of the church, and in particular out of her sorrows and her struggles in the early centuries, whether it was in the persecutions or whether it was in the time of growth uh, throughout the various cultures uh, to which the faith was taken and the, the struggle with that growth itself, that the pra these prayers arise out of the lived reality of the church. And it's 
contemplation of itself as the body of Christ and its contemplation of its participation in the saving mystery of Christ and how that then is to be entered into in order that they then might bring the grace that they receive to the world that they are now engaging. And so it's with this understanding that we are to approach these, these brief and direct prayers. And beyond that, he tells us that what is so often done very quickly, let us pray, and then uh, the priest will go right into the prayer, that there should be a pregnant pause there that allows everyone in the congregation, as it were, to gather up their own intentions for, the, for their family, for those who are suffering, for their own needs, for the things that they're struggling with their spiritual life, along with the intentions of the church that are captured in these beautiful but brief prayers. And because of that brevity, again, it allows that moment to be filled with meaning and allows us to do that in a prayerful fashion. So that after that pause, then, we can, with the priest, who is directing that prayer to the Father, direct all of our prayers and intentions with him. And I, I think this is why many will ar argue that the position of ad orientum allows us to capture that in a, a, far, uh, a far more complete way. That when the priest is facing the altar, when his orientation is towards the altar and ultimately towards the Father, to whom all the prayers of the Mass are directed, then it become, uh, becomes much more as if he is leading us in that prayer. And consciously, or unconsciously even for us in that moment, we are, see ourselves as participating with him as he is either chanting or saying that prayer. Whereas so often I think when the priest is facing us, we might be more conscious of his personality, the tone of his voice, his, his posture, you know, his Oron's posture, you know, whether it's sort of sleepy and drooping or whether it's really reflective that he's engaged in a moment of prayer. Uh, whereas I said before, you know, in the extraordinary form, the, the postures were all very precise and the priests would be very focused on doing them and doing them well and exactly. Same thing with everybody who was participating in the, the liturgy with him, whether it was the deacon, subdeacon, and the servers as well. Uh, that you'll still see that today in the extraordinary form. There's real precision with which they engage in all of their acts and in their responses to these prayers. And I think it's been dismissed so often as a kind of formalism or legalism, but really a, a formalism that has no meaning whatsoever. And here we find Guardini uh, telling us something just the opposite, that the formality allows us then to have a kind of unity as a congregation led by the priest in offering that prayer to the Father. And sometimes, with the, again, with the priest turned towards the people, it becomes too much like, uh, you know, it's uh, we're observing what's going on. It's like being at a baseball game, you know, sitting in the stands watching what others are doing rather than seeing ourselves as intimately participating and what's going on there. I think we've over, in a literalistic form, have seen participating as something like reading at Mass 
or serving at mass or having a gaggle of people up there as extraordinary uh, ministers distributing, you know, from the chalice or distributing hosts rather than it used to be the other priests in the parish would come to help distribute communion. And so we, in sort of this literalistic way, we see participation as taking over the functions in the liturgy that were, uh, were uh, embraced by, say, the deacon, subdeacon, and the servers. And in the process, we're, we're, we're thinking in doing that, we're participating more, but we've diminished the, the real participation that Guardini is speaking of, of here, the participation that comes from a true contemplation and understanding of, of the liturgy and what these prayers are saying and how we are to be offering them with the priest. Okay. Any comments? I thought I saw, yes. Yeah, one of the things that's striking about uh, the extraordinary form as well is that for a lot of those moments, the organ was the Orate uh, Fratres, mm -hmm. the priest actually turns and faces the people and then turns back. That always struck me as being very, as being specifically like inviting people. That's right. Invitational to, to participate in what's coming. That they aren't simply listening to it in a passive way, but it's an active participation. And we've probably heard that phrase over and over again. And that's what he's capturing. It's, it's subtle, but it makes all the difference in the world. Because you can have all this active participation and people really not be fully engaged in the liturgy at all, but be distracted. You know, both because of the music, because of the unnecessary and impre imprecise movements uh, up on the altar. Uh, you know, all, the, all these things diminish that experience and become distractions for us. Does I see another hand? Okay. These prayers are significant for the direction which the, the prayer takes in them. The Catechism defines prayer as a lifting of the heart to God. For God is above us and our way to him leads upward. He is also in us, so the way to him leads through the inner sanctuary. How does this movement take place? Has it some guiding principle or method? And this, I think, is the most beautiful paragraph of, of this little reflection of Guardini. All collects, regardless of content, close with a remarkable sentence. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who livest and reignest with God the Father in the unity of the Holy Ghost, God, world without end. We often take this for granted. And again, it can be something that's rushed through by the priest and that we perhaps aren't uh, paying attention to in the, in the way that we should. Uh, and I think that's even true in the way that we make the sign of the cross, so that the, the gestures you know, are often done in this haphazard way that we lose a uh, uh, sense of this Trinitarian formula that really shapes our entire prayer life, but as Guardini will tell us, shapes our entire existence as Christian men and women. And so we should be ever attentive to the, this part of the prayer and to all the prayers of the Mass uh, that have this same focus. He says, through our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, here is the direction we are seeking the proper relation between the goal, the way, and the power 
which enables us to take it. The goal is the Father. The way and the power which enables us, I'm sorry, the goal, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. let me start over again. Here is the direction we are seeking, the proper relation between the goal, the way, the power which enables us to take it. The goal is the Father. Prayer is a seeking of his face. The way is Christ. The power is the Holy Spirit. This one sentence contains the whole law of liturgical prayer. Its method is the same used by the divine trinity in the work of our salvation. All things come from and return to the Father. In the Logos, the Word, he created the world. When man sinned, Christ was sent into the world to rescue and restore it to the Father. The power by which the eternal Son became man and fulfilled his task was that of the Holy Spirit. And the strength of the same Spirit sent us by the Father in the Son's name, we return along the road of Christ home to the Father. So something that we often will take, take for granted because of its familiarity is the thing that we should be most attentive to because it is meant to shape not only our liturgical prayer, but all of our prayer, and including our private prayer. It's our, our prayer is always Trinitarian. It always has this focus on the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Father being the goal, the Son being our way, and the Holy Spirit being the strength in and through which we are able to live out the life of Christ. And, but it's always, you know, these prayers are always done in and through and with Christ. And it's by virtue of our communion and receiving communion that we participate in this holy sacrifice of the Mass. Again, not in an abstracted way, but in this radical union and union with Christ. In offering the Father, the Son, as we do at the altar, we are united with him. You know, in our offering of the gifts at the offertory, we are laying ourselves upon that altar along with Christ. And so to the Father, we are offering our, ourselves up in and through and with the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we're celebrating Mass and as we're hearing these prayers being said or ch being chanted, we should be ever so cognizant of this reality that our goal is unity with the Most Holy Trinity, participation in the life of God. One would say even deification. And that comes in and through our participation in the life of Christ. We are made one with him by virtue of our baptism, our confirmation, our reception of the Holy Eucharist. And it's in and through him then that we are able to be raised up and lifted up to the Father, that we are able to make our return as well with him, that we are raised up to a state greater than the original innocence of Adam and Eve, that something far more has been given to us, far more profound has been given to us, a life, a share in the eternal life of our God. And this is the striking thing about the mercy and the compassion and the love of God. Uh, it's not, again, simply a kind of distant forgiveness of, of a debt, but uh, taking upon that debt on himself in this radical, most radical and intimate fashion by becoming one of us and then bearing the burden of that on, on the cross. 
and then in and through this, not only freeing us from that sin, but drawing us into his own divine life. And, you know, there's so often, you know, I've heard people use phrases like, you know, those who are in heaven will look with joy upon the suffering of those in hell. You know, a kind of harsh kind of, of view uh, uh, of God, uh, a God of retribution, uh, a God who's looking, in, in a sense, you know, to punish. And a lot of times this is a projection of our own attitudes that we want in our, sometimes in our struggles with others, our pound of flesh, when somebody wounds us or somebody does something wrong to us, sins against us, you know, we, we want them to pay the cost for that, not simply to seek our forgiveness, but we want justice. Uh, but even after 2,000 years, somehow it seems to evade us that the justice of God or the mercy of God is his justice. The gods respond to the profound injustice that's been done to him. The profound nature of our sin is not punishment, but rather mercy, a willingness to take the burden of all that upon himself. And if we turn back to him, then also to offer us the fullness of his life and love. And after 2,000 years, as I said, a lot of people have trouble believing that that's true for themselves that God could love them in that way. They believe that in some sense that the stone still seals the tomb for them, uh, that in some ways that they're damned, that there's no forgiveness for them. And f for others, there is, you know, the, the Pharisees, even though they faded out, out of existence, are alive and well in the human heart throughout the centuries. That some, you know, take that, up that same attitude uh, uh, about righteousness, you know, thinking in a sense that it is earned, you know, that uh, not simply that we participate in that and seek to give ourselves over to the grace of God, but in some sense there's a kind of Pelagianism, that there's an overemphasis upon human acts, actions and acts, that we earn that mercy and forgiveness rather than all things being grace, all th even the desire to do good as being a grace that comes to us from the hand of God. And so there, there can be, you know, this lack of sense of participation in the sacrifice of the Mass uh, that the liturgy and the prayers really draw us into and are meant to draw us into, that we are joined as one body, the body of Christ and offering this perfect sacrifice of the Son to the Father, but uniting our own poor sacrifice and offering of ourselves to that. And in the receiving Christ, becoming one with him radically. So there's no lack, to be no lack of participation, but it's not through these external actions that we're doing during the Mass. It really has to do with what's going on within our own heart and within our own lives that we are seeking to give ourselves over to God as radically as Christ did. And that finds its fullest expression for us in the Mass. And, you know, so often our focus is on what we receive, which is right, you know, that we receive the, the body of Christ, we receive the, the most extraordinary of all gifts. 
but oftentimes I think there's a, a failure to see our, ourselves as victims with the victim of offering ourselves along with him fully. Uh, again, not being passive participants, but living in this radical union and communion with him. You know, suffering the cross has always been a stumbling block, even for many, and one might even say most Christians. You know, what, why does God allow this? It's because God himself has done it first in order to lift us up you know, far more than just out of our sins, but to lift us up to share in an eternal life. And he invites us to share in that, beginning with our participation in the redemptive work itself in union with his son. And the way that he makes that possible is by <clears throat> allowing us to share in the Holy Eucharist, uh, allowing us to become one body with him. But we too often, it's a notional thing for us. It's, it's an abstraction to us. I think that's why so many of us can so easily walk up and receive Holy Communion. You know, there's, it can be a lack of fear and trembling. There can be a lack of uh, the awe-inspired sense that we should have of what we are participating in at that moment. Again, we become, it's often like we become mere consumers, like we're receiving something special there, but we're receiving it like everything else that we receive in this world. And you can see it sort of in a radical way on Palm Sunday and on Ash Wednesday. I know we've talked about this before, but the church will be full on Ash Wednesday to receive ashes on the forehead, you know, sign of mortality. But often it is in this consumerist kind of way. I want to receive my ashes, you know, that it can be separated, abstracted from the beginning of Lent and what Lent means. And so it's like, that's a special day. I'm getting something extra special, these ashes. And so often those ashes are made more important than the receiving of Holy Communion itself. The same can be true on Palm Sunday, that the churches can be packed, not so much because it's the beginning of Holy Week, but because uh, to get their palm, to make sure they, they get their, their palm branch, something extra for that, for that day. And I don't want to be flip, flippant here, but I think uh, in some ways it is a, a reflection of our, that consumerist way in which we all approach the Eucharist. There was one priest at my uh, sister's old parish that had since closed down uh, the parish, but it was an old Polish priest, and he said, the Eucharist is not fast food. And that's so often how it is treated, though, that people will come in late, receive Holy Communion, and leave early. You know, coming in to receive something that they feel that they, they need, but are so in, disengaged that there's no participation there in the liturgy all, at all, other than to take for themselves what they, receive, they believe is their right as a Catholic Christian, but devoid of, of all understanding. And we see how devoid of understanding by this recent uh, Pew Research study, that there isn't even a belief in the real presence of Christ. And so now we're moving to uh, a far more cultural sense of Catholicism, you know, a, a continued participation in the faith without a real understanding. I did see one very good article today that sort of cast that in a positive light, 
that, that shows something negative, of course, that there is a huge group of Catholics who don't understand their faith and don't believe what the church teaches. But there is also a, a group that does believe it and there is this kind of growth and maybe a smaller portion of the church that is more fully catechized, that is developing a piety and a devotion, uh, maybe on a smaller level, but that is coming to life. And, you know, Pope Benedict had said that, the church is going to become a smaller, holier church. And so in some ways, while as disappointing as that study might be, it sort of, uh, uh, it sort of reveals the truth, I think, of Pope Benedict's statement, the church is going to become smaller. You know, that, that kind of cultural Catholicism won't last long, especially in light of everything that's been going on, in light of the scandals that we've had to endure and the loss of the moral and spiritual authority of the church as a whole. You know, there's already a, you know, a large movement of people that are leaving the church. It, it took that, you know, the scandal, that anger to motivate them, but it probably didn't take much more than that uh, to motivate, motivate them. And, you know, at this point, what we have to do, I think, is what Guardini is telling us, to live, begin to live it fully, to allow it to transform, it, transform us in the way that it's meant to. Yes? Um, in what you're saying, Father, is about how people leaving the church, maybe they don't have that faith. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about when, when did this, I, I, I know you can't pinpoint it, but what was the wave that started this? You know, I'm going back and I'm thinking about a lot of the things that you're saying and, you know, you went to Mass and you learned all about this. I, I'm thinking there's a lot of people that never were educated this way, but, you know, my mom and dad sent me to Catholic school and sent us all and like, the whole group. We all went to Mass and we believed. What started eroding this? I mean, is there a... That's a good question. I think... You know, as Catholics, we tend to view things not in the sense of decades, but of centuries. And I think a more honest perspective on this would be that it goes back to the, the Enlightenment. You know, a kind of rise of a, a, a rationalism, you know, that you know, only what one can see and observe is true. A diminishment of faith and the knowledge that comes in and through faith. And... You know, this had an enormous effect upon the world, but upon the church as a whole. And, you know, when there's a movement away, you know, where, where there's this elevation of intellect and reason in a distorted fashion, where, where there's a diminishment of, of faith taking place at the same time, then the capacity to enter into the mystery and understand it fully begins to diminish. And that might take centuries for us to see the fruit of that. And uh, I think a lot of people would pinpoint it as taking place then, and a sort of a slow movement into a kind of intellectualism, rationalism, you know, uh, uh, a kind of where everything is put on sort of a similar relativism, where everything is put on the same plane, you know, in terms of its value, its truth value. And uh, so from that point on, I think, 
uh, even though the church seemed vital on the surface and all the way through the middle of the last century, it seemed vital. But I think all the things that we see happening now or we're just hearing about now, you know, we're seeing the, the most, the, you know, the grossest uh, fruit of that, the, the base, basis fruit of that now. Really, that began, that had, that most of those, the, the terrible things took place 50 years ago. But I think the diminishment of the asceticism and the deep understanding of the faith, you know, began long before that. And so this sense of the whole self being involved in the life of faith. So the loss of a sense of Christianity being an ascetical religion in the sense that we have to give ourselves over fully to God, and that means that we have to seek to discipline ourselves, our will, our intellect. We have to order the passions, our desire toward God, and that we have to seek to strengthen our faith, and that faith is a form of knowledge of comprehending, but that comes only through the purifying of the heart. And so when that is neglected and the faith is, is approached in an overly intellectual kind of way, uh, then you find a, a, di a diminished capacity not only to live out the faith but to understand and, and perceive the deeper truths of it. And one might, you know, you know, some would probably argue that it goes back even to, you know, scholasticism, you know, that tendency towards a kind of rationalism, a rationalistic uh, approach to, you know, speaking of the, of the faith, um, most Catholics probably wouldn't go along with that or believe that, but I think a lot in the East sort of see that as a, a kind of movement, you know, in the way that theology was being approached at that point, that it was being approached in an overly, you know, rationalistic kind of fashion, that there was this loss of the ascetical and mystical element of the faith already at that point. And, and, and I agree with what you're saying, but I'm also thinking it, it's not over, not all the time over intellectual, but I'm going to go back like mm -hmm. in the 50s when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you do fasting and you do all this, it was meant mm -hmm. to be something as a part of a tradition. Right. So it, it, the intellectual, I, I don't see that it was there. Right. It, it, I mean, you, you mentioned over That's intellectual, right. but it was kind of like you did it because this was part of the church. Good, good was, point. You know, see, the, it, things begin to break down when you know there is that movement to, towards a kind of rationalism away from and away from the faith and the diminishment of it. It can't sustain itself, and so it can't hold take hold of the heart as a true and deep faith does. And so you get to a point then that. You know, intellect is not going to enliven or bring necessarily bring a person to faith. And w where there's a movement away from faith, but also the ascetical life, then the intellectual approach will falter. And there will be a loss of understanding of why we are doing what we're doing. And so I think that contributes to uh, a lack of understanding of what Guardini is des describing here and what he's trying to rectify in his writings that was already ex existed prior to the council. And the problem was is that it wasn't thought through well enough that somehow if we would just be able to understand our faith through better catechesis, 
But if better catechesis is only seen as this intellectual kind of approach to the faith, if we just taught people well enough, they would get it and the faith would be revitalized. Well, not only is that false, but it never took place, the catechesis, and the, the renewal of the ascetical, mystical life, the return to the spiritual tradition never took place. So the, the church has been hobbled on multiple fronts, and we see the, the fruit of that. And so even how we're approaching our, our reading of Guardini, I think it, it can't all just be within our head, you know, as we listen to what he's talking about here, that we have to know that this is tied to our living out of the faith, the purifying of our heart through our struggle with our sins and the passions, and that at the same time that we are deepening our capacity to contemplate the mysteries of God and to be drawn into them. This is the only way that the, that the, the church is re revitalized and that alone is what produces saints. You know, saints aren't argued into the faith and argued into holiness. You know, it comes out of, out of a gift of faith and love for God that saints are, are born. And, you know, I it, you know for that to reemerge within the life of the church, I don't, I don't know what it's going to take. You know, I, what gives me faith is when you hear somebody like Philip Neary say, if, you know, give me 10 truly detached men and I can convert the world. And so that sort of gives me hope that again, it's not, it's not necessarily numbers that's going to do it. It's going to be those who are of deep faith, who are living it fully, and who bear witness to that in the world. Uh, Saint Seraphim of Seraph once said, you know, if, if there's one person who has the peace of Christ, the peace of the kingdom within his heart, he will convert thousands, one person. And so that's what we should be seeking. You know, even if there's a small group for whom that is true, think of the impact that that would, would have. You know, I often, I was talking to somebody about this today, but uh, the apparition in Guadalupe, you know, this is at the time of the rise of communism and the diminishment of the, the faith, the loss of the faith of, of millions. And in the course of the, the years of that apparition and following, I think it's like some, something like six million converted to Catholicism. So, you know, God acted in this extraordinary way in and through the revelation in the appearance of Mary in Guadalupe to bring about this massive conversion of millions of people while the church was being afflicted uh, in another area of, of the world. And, you know, it's certainly not beyond God to do something similar in our day. How that will take place or what fashion it will take place, I'm not sure. Maybe it'll be through adoration or little groups like this or something like that. Okay, where did I leave off? Does anybody? Okay, any other thoughts? Should I move on? Okay. We are Christians in Christ. Our new life is life in him. So I'd underline that for your, yourself. 
we are Christians in Christ, our new life is life in him. So we, again, we never abstract our living out of our faith on a daily basis from our union and communion with Christ. It's in him that we are made holy. It's in him that we are transformed and purified. And I've mentioned uh, this commentary before to you from this author named Erasmo uh, Maricacus, where he says the opposite of, of, of sin is not virtue. The opposite of vice is not virtue. The opposite of vice is life in Christ. That we, the more that we are given over to that life and living in him is how we are, are transformed. So we're not just climbing up by ourselves the mountain of virtue, which you know we can often think of our spiritual struggles in those terms, but it's really our living in Christ that gives us this divine strength then to li live virtue on this heroic level. His virtue becomes our virtue. His strength becomes our strength. His faith becomes our faith. His hope becomes our hope. This is what, what our life is to be. And so Guardini makes a point of drawing our attention to it. Hence, Christian prayer is prayer in Christ. This is how our prayer is made perfect. You know, by ourselves, our, our prayer is poor. We offer it to God in as much faith as we can. But in, in and through the spirit that dwells within it, us and in and through our union and communion with Christ, our prayer is, participates in the perfect prayer of the Mass and is offered up to the Father. And it's in this that we find hope. Again, not in ourselves, but in Christ. By this time, the attentive reader will have noticed that almost invariably the liturgy unrolls before the Father to whom all words and acts are addressed. Very rarely, and then only for an obvious reason, does it turn to the Son. For instance, in the Gloria, where one of the holy persons after the other is invoked, or in the Agnus Dei, as the priest's eye seems to meet those of the Savior offering himself for the sacrifice. So at that moment after the consecration, when the priest is uh, preparing himself to receive the Holy Eucharist, and also when the congregation is preparing, the focus of the prayer turns towards Christ himself. It's though our eyes meet with the beloved with whom we are united and are going to be even united in a fuller way and then through our reception of the Holy Eucharist. That's the moment in the liturgy where our, our prayer turns its focus to the Son directly, but the rest of the Mass is directed toward the Father. The way for us, remember, he said, is Christ, and the strength through which we make our way is the Spirit. The prayers of the latter periods are more inclined to address themselves to Christ, but we feel at once that somehow they are out of order. The holy countenance to which the words of the liturgy are directed is that of the Father. But at every point, Christ is the vital room in which everything takes place and the way that it is, is taken. His revelation is the truth which meets us wherever we look. His living, dying, and rising again is the power that lifts all things into newness. His living reality is the model for and the manner of holy existence, the essential to which we should surrender ourselves in which we should exist. The Holy Spirit is the power by which we are meant to accomplish both oneness with Christ and the movement toward the Father. 
So again, you know, our faith, our living out of the faith cannot be in this abstract way. It cannot be individualistic. Or, um, yeah, I think it's, it's enough to say that, you know, that we often approach the, the, the faith not in this liturgical sense, not in this Trinitarian sense, not with the sense of our uh, being in union with Christ and strengthened by the Spirit as we pursue the, the path of, of the gospel. Often it's this very individual pursuit that has more to do, I think, with self-esteem and our individual identity as trying to be religious people than it does have to do with this radical intimacy with Christ in and through the Spirit that is directed toward the Father. And so you see, we have, we have to struggle very you know, in a very strong way on, on the level of faith to have this clarity about who we are. And this is why, you know, going back to the beginning, that he could say that our entire existence is shaped by this reality and how we listen to and participate in those prayers of the Mass. It seemed like such a radical statement at the beginning of the meditation. Now it seems like an understatement that you know, everything about who we are is captured up in our participation in the life of the Trinity. And if we fail to understand that, if we aren't living that, then we really aren't living as Christian men and women. We might be living an external religious kind of life, but it, it might not be the Christian life, and it might not be living, out, living our life out in the fullness of the revelation. All of this, he says, is of vital importance. It is the very principle of Christian existence. It is so true and so fundamental that it does not particularly force itself upon the consciousness. We hardly notice it until we turn to the later prayers which someone has at some time or another felt called upon to compose and we suddenly notice how cramped we feel on them. The most important things pass unnoticed. They belong to the a priori of existence and are lived in rather than regarded. Air, light, the arrangement of space and time, the ground on which we stand, and the way from our particular point of departure to the goal. We do not notice how essential they are until they are missing. The principle we have been discussing is somewhat analogous only incomparably greater and holier. It is the working principle of truth and love by which God himself lives, creates, and redeems. It is to this that he summons us. Our praying is meant to be fulfilled according to its sacred law. So this should be something that so radically fills our consciousness that we don't even have to be thinking about it so much, that we are so formed by this reality that we are living and praying in light of our relationship with the Most Holy Trinity. We are living and praying in union with Christ and in and through the gift of the, of the Holy Spirit. And we notice it most when it's missing, when we see that all, all the sort of the bizarre and odd things that have been done with the liturgy over the course of these past 60 years or so. 60? How many? Is it about right? Yeah, 60, 70 years. How long are we since the, the council? You know, the, all the odd and bizarre things have only diminished our understanding of these uh, 
essential realities of who we are as human beings. They've not only diminished our worship, but they've diminished our understanding of what we've been made in Christ and what has been made possible for us. And, you know, this is what we should weep over. You know, a lot of those who want the extraordinary form back, it can be a mere aesthetic kind of thing. You know, it's, it's, it seems more beautiful, more reverent, uh, but it's no guarantee, you know, simply going back to that, that these things are going to be understood. You know, the, the way in which the liturgy was celebrated or certain aspects of it may have lent itself more to what Guardini discusses here, but without this understanding and without the full embrace of it in reality in our lives, it could be just as empty. But we, we see the damage that has been done. You know, the, there are very few, I think, of, uh, of us and very few priests, well, I would have to honestly say, that would understand themselves as entering into the liturgy in this way, would have that level of preparation for the most important thing in their life on a daily basis. The same should be, could be said of any of the other sacraments, like a priest preparing for confession should be every bit as extensive as the penitent preparing to go to confession. That you know, his uh, preparation for that moment, the grace that he seeks in order to be this vehicle of, of mercy, of reconciliation with God, should involve his whole self you know, his, his, his prayer, his ascetical life should prepare him for that reality in the same way that he would be preparing for Mass. And you could see what's taken place, that priests have been pushed into this position of being administrators, you know, of, you know, running these, you know, bigger parishes and, you know, the finances uh, or groups, socials, and pulled away slowly from the things that are the pillars of their priesthood, preaching, prayer, and the administration uh, of the sacraments. That's what they're ordained for. And so as a church, as a community, we should really be protective of that reality. If we want to see a renewal of the church, we should be allowing the, uh, the priest and fostering and encouraging the priest to live out that identity and all of its fullness. And the seminary training should be about that as well. And not that they might be good administrators or be good organizers or people, people persons, you know, that <clears throat> they should be, you know, formed in mind and heart to do these things in the way that Guardini describes. Yes. Yeah. I have, I guess, a different, <clears throat> maybe a more unique perspective most of the people because of my age, but uh, you know, for the first 20 years of my life, I was brought up in the Catholic Church, Catholic school, and Latin Mass. And then, actually, once I went from John's up to Pittsburgh, Pitt, I drifted away. And I didn't drift back until I was 50 years old. And when I left, it was the Mass was the, the sacrifice of the Mass. And when I came back, it was the Supper of the Lamb. And I, 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 I had difficulty, you know. What I found is when I came back, that when I came here and you were singing Latin, That's right. I could sing those songs from rote memory, right. even though I hadn't sung them in 30 years. Right. You know, they were still there, it's part mm -hmm. of tradition, but also part of just the, I know they tried to make the mass more inclusive, but you know, 
If you mm -hmm. gain inclusivity, you lose mystery. Right. And you move, you lose that this is something different. Mm -hmm. this, you know, when I walk into this mass, this or this church, or this, this, this ceremony, this is a special place. This right. is a sacred place. Right. And I don't feel that. Right. You know, it's very, or at least it's very difficult to feel that. Right. You know, I, I can feel it because I, I prepare myself for mass. That's right. Right. And easier probably to prepare yourself for it because you tasted it at one point in your life, you know, right. before before the changes. I think Emily, you ex had exposed me to this video. What's the young man's name? Brian Holdsworth. Brian Holdsworth. Holdsworth. But he was talking about that you know certain forms of music have their particular pur purpose. Folk music, pop music, those are things he says you listen to while you're driving in the car. Or, you know, or you're at a barn dance or something like that, and they have their proper place in that. But they, they don't have a proper place in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. You know, they banalize it, they, they reduce it into something. It's not fitting at all that the, the music, as well as everything else, you know, the way that we engage in that reality should be reflective of, of what we are doing at that moment. And so the vestments the priest wears, the movements he makes, the music that is being sung, the choir, you know, the, the beauty of the choir, all these things lend to the transcendent reality that we are, you know, participating in at that moment, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And, you know, in this desire to create communion, they've destroyed you know, a sense of the real means through, through communion, the real means of communion that we have with each other, which is through the Mass itself, by turning it in to sort of a social event, you know, a, a dinner, you know, uh, a meal, but again, ab abstracted from the cross. And when you do that, you know, people are going to lose a sense of the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist, and, and then they're going to also stop coming. You know, we're never going to be able to do that music as well as the world does anyways, you know. <laughs> it's not like we have Taylor Swift or somebody up there singing at the <laughs> altar. We usually have somebody playing an electric keyboard off key and singing off key. Yes. You mentioned that it, during that um, Second World War period where people were turning away from the faith that the Guadalupe apparition occurred and there were so many more um, conversions at that time. Do you think it's it's possible that we're going through a similar thing now? Because our vocations, a lot of the vocations from other countries are, are um, far more traditional. Right. And then they're coming here to right. some people. Yeah, we've become mission territory again. Yeah. Which is sort of surprising that, you know, it had been the other way around for a while. We had produced so many vocations, uh, but now we're the ones in need receiving vocations from like Africa, you know, where they have so many voc vocations that they don't, you know, they don't have enough places to house them or educate them. And uh, there are other countries like that as, as well. And so the faith is growing in certain certain places, but it's often in places that haven't been affected so radically by uh, secularism and materialism that sort of has, have, you know, diminished our, our culture as well as, you know, a sense of rel religiosity. But I think it's going to require something more 
to, to lift us out of this, you know, whether it would be a revelation like Guadalupe, it could be, you know, through something a little bit more challenging, which would be persecution. I mean, I think we see this happening in Middle Eastern countries, you know, some of the oldest yeah, Christian, right, yeah, we are there, and they are being persecuted almost to the point of extinction, but we also see a deepening of their faith. I mean, these people are going back often to the places, you know, there are countries that had been destroyed and were, you know, so often they were deeply persecuted and going back and practicing their faith again in these churches that have been destroyed. The media never covers this kind of stuff, but it, it is taking place. And uh, it's often through this that the, the, then the faith is revitalized when people really see the cost of living it and have to bear, Christ, bear witness to Christ, you know, a, gr a great sacrifice. So, you know, I think we, on our part, we have to do what we're doing, you know, try to live the faith more and more fully to immerse ourselves in the mysteries. Adoration, I think, I can't help but believe that that's a source of renewal of, you know, faith in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And, uh, but there's a long way to go. There's little islands in, in the West, I think, pockets of faith. But what we're seeing is we're struggling in a time of deep corruption. And there are prophetic voices, you know, that are speaking to us. Cardinal Seurat, you know, there's a few out there who are really speaking the truth in the way that we need to hear. And he's done that in a couple works, and he has another writing that's coming out in September. Does anybody remember the title? Yeah, the day is now far spent. It's coming out at the beginning of September. And I think he sort of does deal more with the issues that we're talking about here, you know, the diminishment uh, of the faith and, you know, his, his vision and understanding of it. That reminds me, you mentioned Fulton Sheen mm -hmm. before, and, and I've just recently mm -hmm. become this huge Fulton Sheen fan, yeah. and I keep reading his stuff. And it's funny because I think his shorter homilies and shorter little quotes mm -hmm are powerful, yeah. so much more powerful than yeah. the longer so, talk. So memorable and relevant to, oh, to this day. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I get good, I'm getting yeah. just thinking about yeah. it. Because he, Some of the favorite things I've read on priesthood come from his writings as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's funny you hear people talk about the days when he was on television mm -hmm. and how powerful he was and that even Protestants were watching him. I mean, he was even, he was more popular than, who was the comedian? Martin Burrell, right? Yeah. Uh, so he had, you know, better ratings. He's the, had the best ratings on television. So he was really engaging people there in a, a profound way. Uh, we've just never been able to quite cap capture another person like him. Maybe his canonization will do something about that. He said he had that. better writers. Huh? He said he had better, better writers. writers. That's right, <laughs> the, the saints. Okay. So that brings us to the, the end of the text. Any final comments? Okay. So as always, we, we conclude with the prayer to St. Philip, if you want to stand for that. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, 
O down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard with which your hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender. Undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, roll thine army fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and placed as thou art on high, Keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee, for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.